Hello, a massive welcome to the Memorabilia Podcast. I'm Rick, and beside me is my wife, Kate. And today we have the pleasure of discussing another wonderful album from the 90s. It's Pearl Jam's Versus, released 30 years ago this week. If you're new to our podcast, we select a record from our collection, dissect it within an inch of its life, and look at the other music and cultural happenings around the time of release. And in this case, it's the 19th of October, 1993. So without further ado, let's crack on with podcast episode number 33. So how are we, Kate? How are we doing? Very good. It's not like we haven't seen each other today. I know, but I just wanted you to set the mood for our listeners. Okay. (laughs) Always down. Always down. Only when you're recording this, darling. (laughs) I'm quite excited. This is a good album. This is a good album to talk about. Well, as we said, we're 30 years ago, 1993, October the 19th, it was released. Pearl Jam's second album, we covered 10, their debut album, just two episodes ago, which was episode number 31, if you want to go back and look at that. If you are a Pearl Jam fan and joining us for the first time, hello. And um, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Um, And I guess if I got one word to sum up this album, I would choose Incredible. And I'll go into why in a second. And uh, my word to describe it would be respect. Respect. Respect for coming up with such a fantastic album under such. How is that a description? Difficult circumstances. Because I've got a lot of respect for the album. It needs respect, this album. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I I guess... um, where were they? Where were Pearl Jam after they released the absolutely colossal 10 from 1991? We're two years on from that. The band had kind of blown up out of nowhere. Um, I heard Eddie Vedder talk about, and we mentioned this on the last episode, that they needed to reach, their goal was to reach 40,000 album sales just so that they could make another record. And 10 obviously went on to sell over 10 million copies. So they, they kind of... <laughs> smashed that goal. So they were under under pressure on this record, under pressure from the fans, the record company, critics. Uh, there's a lot of people calling them sellouts, uh, including, I think we talked about this album as well, Kurt Cobain. Um, the contemporaries themselves, I think that they were under the most pressure from themselves as, as much as anything. And so they weren't in a particularly good place. And I think that's why it's pretty incredible that they come up with the record that they did um and i think also the album title versus which if you don't know the album it's a big v little s and a dot after it pronounced versus um i think that's a, a pretty good album album title because they were very uncomfortable with the stardom of it all um and even though they were labeled as sellouts as i've already mentioned I suppose they were in a, a place of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't because they tried to be kind of indifferent to it all and push back against it and, and all the rest of it, which obviously is the opposite to being a a sellout, but it didn't didn't uh, stop them from getting labelled as that. So originally the album was going to be titled uh, Five Against One. Uh, there's an album from the second track, sorry, uh, a lyric from the, the second track on the album, uh, which goes one, two, three, four, five against one. Um, 
and Stone Gossard was the one who suggested uh, the title for this. Eddie Vedder, uh, lead singer, he was the one who came up with all the, the lyrics on the album. The rest of the, the music was between the rest of the band, I guess. Um, and Stone said to Rolling Stone magazine, for me, that title represented a lot of struggles you go through trying to make a record. Your own independence, your own soul versus everybody else's in this band, and I think in rock in general, the art of compromise is almost as important as the art of individual expression. You might have five great artists in a band, but if they can't compromise and work together, you don't have a great band. It might mean something completely different to Eddie, as in Eddie Vedder, but when I heard that lyric, it made a lot of sense to me. So it's somewhat of a mystery why they changed it at the last minute. No one really knows. Um, they changed it at first to a self-titled album, which if you've listened to us before, you know I hate, so I'm glad they didn't choose that. And then they came up with verses, uh, and last minute is emphasised by the fact that some of the um, the initial pressings of the cassettes actually had five against one on the um, on the cassettes themselves. So uh, I guess verses, it's very much a nod to the theme of conflict in many of the songs. And Eddie Vedder said they were writing all these articles talking about the music press and the press in general. Our band against someone else's band. What the hell are they talking about? You know, don't try and separate the powers that be. We're all in this together. So he was kind of saying, you know, it's it's not us against other bands. You know, we're all trying to do the same thing. We want to be a part of this, this kind of scene, this movement. Stop trying to, you know, pit us against everyone else sort of thing. Uh, packaging. What do you think to the uh, the album cover? Uh, yeah, it's alright. Very different from the the debut album. Ten had got the very famous all jumping hands in the air together. Very much a band together. It was a kind of self cobbled album artwork, I guess. They did the background for that. Mm-hmm. For ten, and on this... I just keep hearing knocking, and I'm like, is it the front door? Is it fireworks? Is it our daughter that's upset? <laughs> She's in the kitchen cooking. It's, it's really distracting me. She's doing knocking, cooking, cu- oh, cooking. Okay. Is that what's happening? Very yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah. So the album cover is, uh, if you've not seen it, a black and white photo of an angora goat. Um, and if you're really interested in animals, then this is a Turkish breed <laughs> that produces the lustrous fibre mohair. Come on, you like facts like that. I just did that for you. Thank you. Welcome. That was a firework. That was a firework. <laughs> yeah, we are pretty close to firework night. We're only two weeks off it. Starting late this year. Uh, yes, so this, this particular Angora goat was on a farm in Montana and was photographed by bass player Jeff Ament, who said it was a representation of how the band felt at the time. The goat, or the sheep as some people refer to it. Toothy. He's toothy, yeah, he's pressed up against the wire fence. His front face is kind of pushing against his... His front face? Yeah, as opposed to his backside. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, his comment was, we were slaves. They felt like they were kind of trapped in this record company um, whirlwind and had to adhere to certain things, and they weren't keen on doing that. But I think I I saw an interview with... uh, a more recent interview with Eddie Vedder and he was kind of saying, look, it was a it was a good problem to have. 
retrospectively, I just wish people had kind of said to me, it'll work out all right and chill and enjoy it a bit. Because clearly in their heads, they weren't sure it was going to work out, whether they were going to... Well, hindsight's a lovely thing, isn't it? Well, I guess it is. <laughs> I'm not sure why you're talking. <laughs> like some weird children's TV presenter. Yes, it is. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I missed me calling. <laughs> Weirdo, I'd, I'd fit in well with that. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so lineup, uh, one change from the first album we heard at the end of uh, the recording of Ten that they parted ways with the original drummer Dave Cruson, um, mainly due to his alcoholism and the fact that he couldn't kind of hold it all together when he needed to. Um, so they recruited. Another Dave, this one being Dave Abruzzisi. Um, and having looked round the internet comments from Pearl Jam fans, a lot of them are saying that he was the best drummer they had. And I say he was the best drummer they had because there were further drummers. Didn't last long with this Dave either. I think they just needed to stop hiring Daves on drums. Um, they parted ways with him in August 94, so only uh, nine months. 10 months, something like that. Uh, he had toured with them on uh, 10, when they were touring 10. But, um, yeah, I think he was, from what I'm understanding, a very different mindset to a lot of the, the group. He quite liked being a rock and roll star. He embraced it, and they, none of them liked it. So there were there were kind of differences within how they felt about the, the whole industry. And being in a band and a few personal... Uh, clashes, I guess, and this was highlighted when they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in it was 2017, something like that. Uh, and he wasn't invited; some of the other drummers were, so it was a bit cheesed off about that as well, unsurprisingly. But he, he certainly brought a, a different drive and power and dynamic to the to the album. Um, he's described as a very technical drummer, but really hits it hard, and you know. I think it, it, it does help uh, differentiate it from the debut for sure. The actual recording of the album, this was done in a place known as The Site. <laughs> yeah, a strange name for a, a recording studio, but there you have it. It was in Nicasio, California, in the middle of nowhere. It was one of these residential ones. Um, population of, uh, what's it called? Nicasio. California is 81. So, yeah, small place. Abrazizi loved it there. It was opulent. They got everything they needed. You know, it was um, everything that he loved and Eddie Vedder hated. So much so that Vedder quite often slept in his truck. He couldn't handle it. He hated it there. He talked about the album being his least favourite experience of recording with, with Pearl Jam ever. And uh, they were there from... March to May in 93, so best part of a couple of months, really. So you can imagine if you were stuck somewhere for two months and not particularly happy there and in a good place, it would be a, a difficult process. So there were there were times he was a bit behind the band. From what I can gather, they were coming up with the songs and the music, uh, sometimes with his help, but he was a bit behind in the, in the lyrics and he was kind of feeling the pressure a little bit. So he used to say to um, the producer... Uh, there's a new producer, Brendan O'Brien, that 
he needed to take himself off and kind of do things that kind of got his head in a different space, come back sometimes with lyrics, sometimes not, but just trying to get a bit of inspiration for some of the songs. He had a different way of working, the producer. It sounds like it, it went quite well and was quite popular with the band. He kind of made sure that they were just doing one song at a time. Quite often the albums in the 90s were recorded in such a way as that like, they'd put down the drum tracks first and the guitars and bass and then the vocals would come after and he wanted them to be more of a kind of a live sound and try and record it all together and just concentrate on one song at a time and when they got the take they wanted, then they could move on to, to the next track. And the other quite clever thing that he did, he, he wanted to... He sounds like a football manager, this guy, to me. He was kind of thinking about how he could get the best performance out of them. So he was trying to get them in the in a mind space where they were, they were ready for recording and um, up for it and not too distracted and not fed up with everything. He said he used to kind of give them a, a 9.30 meeting time in the kitchen, give them a bit of a pep talk, and then he'd take them out and... <laughs> And have a sound like, yeah, okay. And then he used to take them out for a game of softball just to have some fun and loosen them up. And so but it seemed to work. The band liked it. And okay. Not how you'd go about it, clearly. Really? I mean, if someone tried to do that for me, I'd just be like, no. Coffee? <laughs> Is that how someone would get the best out of you? What else would it be? Your best start to the day? A coffee? What else? Coffee. More Coffee. coffee. More coffee. More sleep. Yeah. <laughs> and then a bit more coffee. A lion, then coffee. And then you're laughing. Uh, yeah, so, Kate, talk to me about the album. What oh, do... I thought you were going to say talk to me about coffee. I was excited there. <laughs> you can talk about coffee if you want. <laughs> no, it's fine. What do you think? What do you think to the, the overall sound and the record itself? Uh, I like it better than 10. Probably got my favourite Pearl Jam song on it. Ooh, well, we'll come to that in a bit. Yeah, uh, it was alright. I've listened to it. I've listened to it like five times. What? Like five times. Wow, I'm impressed. That's a record, listeners. Apart from Mark Armand records, which obviously <laughs> <laughs> would be like more like five hundred times. But uh, it it was it was alright. It was better than ten. Uh, well, that's going to be interesting. Can you remember what rating you gave 10? It was quite low, 10. wasn't it? Was it like four or five or something? No, 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 no. I'm not going to tell you. So you've got to give this a rating and we'll see whether your rating system, your rating radar works. Why? I thrive on inconsistency. <laughs> inconsistency. <laughs> I mean, basically, I am not going to be consistent with what I did last time. Yeah, that is true. But uh, maybe we can help you out a little bit with that. Anyway... <laughs> Oh, thanks. So it's in terms of the sound then? Yes. <laughs> how do you think it differed to, to 10? Uh, what did you like more about it? You you see, there's a presupposition there that I can remember what 10 sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> just think about the hits. Alive, Jeremy. <laughs> Even Flow, your favourite song off the album. It, I think there's a couple of ballads on this that yeah. I like. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did keep switching off when it got to like the harder, heavier stuff, which I, I mean, it's not that I don't like that sort of music, but it just wasn't doing it for me. Um, yeah, it's uh, the thing I found with this record is that I was the same because there's some songs on here which I think are, are definitely more immediate than, than others, but 
if you give it time, and I know you don't want to give it time, but I listen to it five times. Oh, but how much more time to give it? Well, I, I think I must have listened to it like twenty-five times in the last yeah, well, three weeks. You're slim then. <laughs> and uh, yeah, some of those songs that didn't really hit me back when I got the record and started listening to it have kind of connected with me now. So, so that was quite good. I mean, it's definitely a more dynamic. Uh, it's a bit looser, it's harder, it's angrier. You know, there's, um, I think it's probably a little bit more diverse as well than, than 10. Um, Jeff Ament himself, the, the bass player, he comments that it was like making a, a, the first record all over again because of the, the producer, the new drummer, and he said that, the, you know, the groove shifted on, on the sec- second record, and, and I'd agree with that. Uh, in terms of reception, very impressive all round. It was obviously a really eagerly anticipated album by the, the fans. Uh, I suppose two years on and a lot of touring off, off 10 and the, the records it shifted. It sold 950,000 copies in the USA in its first five days of release, which was at that time a record for the copies of an album sold during its first week. And that was a record that it held for five years. It occupied the number one spot for five weeks, which was a record for Pearl Jam. The previous record um, for a first week sales was Guns and Roses Use Your Illusion 2, which I know we've mentioned quite a bit recently. Uh, and that sold 770,000. So that was a it smash that, that record. In the UK, it debuted, uh, it's made a debut at number two, which was its, its peak position. And um, I found an article in the LA Times, which I found quite amusing and, and kind of reminded me, because you don't get it these days, do you? you don't, I think now the the shift has come to um, bands kind of make something, an event of live uh, and the tickets going on sale and announcing concerts and all that kind of stuff. And back then it was very much the album that was king. Um, so there was a, a quote in this this article in the LA Times from um, Liz Amundsen, who was a manager at uh, a record store in Madison, Wisconsin, called uh, the Exclusive Company, something like that. Anyway, she said, "I never anything like it. Not like the band was making an appearance or all. These kids are just so nuts uh, to get their hands on a copy of the album. They smash right through the window." And apparently there was uh, 600 fans outside and this was at, at midnight. They used to have these like midnight openings uh, and there were all uh, injuries. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it just gives you an idea of the the scale of the excitement for the release, I guess. Um, in terms of review scores and critical reception. No, everyone's just sat over their laptop refreshing <laughs> until, <laughs> yeah. the, until it comes into stock. Or oh, you've already done your pre-order, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess there is that pre-order thing, isn't there now? But you know, it's all by post, isn't it? You, you don't do a pre-order and go down to shops to go and get it then. Well, no, you? that's what yeah, I mean. It's... So you just you've, you've that whole kind of queuing up thing. Is the postman here? It's just yet? not a thing anymore, is it? No, no. Apart from sitting by your laptop refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, Rolling Stone magazine they give it four and a half out of five. Sydney Morning Herald and USA Today both scored it four out of four. I don't know who rates anything out of four, but there you go. There you go. Uh, the Orlando Sentinel also scored it four out of five. Pitchfork, 7.6 out of 10. 
very precise there from Pitchfork, my kind of rating. Don't even think about it. Okay. <laughs> All music, four out of five. And the only one that was kind of um, not so favourable were our old friends, the NME. I was like, I was thinking it's NME. It's got to be NME. <laughs> it was NME, yeah. They gave it a four as well. Anything to be different. But four out of ten. <laughs> Typical enemy. Um, yeah, I, I put a, a post on Facebook. I'm just going to read a couple of comments there, just asking memories uh, of the album, what it meant to people, that kind of stuff. We had a comment from Brian Barabash. Thank you, Brian, who said, it's a perfect album from the moment you hear the intro to go. Uh, and this emphasizes the last quote from the, the LA Times. I remember buying it at midnight, being blown away by the first track. By the time I got to Dissident, it felt like a masterpiece. Uh, and then there was a comment from Randy Elch. He said, I remember the day it came out. It took me a while to get used to it. Great album. So that kind of goes along with what we have said, I guess. Um, I also put a, a poll on a Pearl Jam fans Reddit group. And um, the poll was for favourite Pearl Jam album from the 90s. I wanted to do of all time, but they've got like about nine albums. And why do all these online polls limit it to like five or six categories? It's crazy on every on every platform. Interestingly, uh, 10 and Versus were the, the top two. 10 polled 62 votes. We had 224 votes. Thanks if you took the time to vote. 62 votes, 10, 52 votes for Versus. So that was 27% and 23% of the vote. Vitalogy there, third release, um, had 33 votes. No Code, fourth release in 96, 32 votes. And their final release of the 90s, Yield, uh, which was released in 1998, was 45 votes. So that came in in third place. So not, not a massive kind of spread of votes between like really low and really high which i guess in some ways indicates that their output of work was you know pretty consistent pretty high and you know people took different things from it but yeah 10 was the winner and that was the one that i voted for as well so okay i sent you some um quotes if you wouldn't mind just reading those because a few people said why they thought it was their their favorite album was their favorite album well, Financial his... ad seven four five four. Well, that's their handle. I don't, I don't know if it's male or female, but there you go. To follow up a monster debut like ten with something that didn't sound anything like it and still was great is amazing. No matter what mood you're in, there's a song on verses for you. From blood to indifference and everything in between, song for song, it's a masterpiece. And then I wonder which album he voted for. <laughs> HK Mark P. Versus sounds and is a better album than 10. Versus, in my opinion, is the best sounding album of all time. All time. Couple that he didn't say that. That was my little interjection. <laughs> just just to clear that up. Uh, couple that with great songs and you have a classic. And Chi Guy, 707, 10. Every single song is a banger and memorable. Short and sweet. Short and just sweet. like the album title. <laughs> yeah thanks for those comments uh, much appreciated and everyone else that, that left us a little comment on there so yeah it's official uh, 10 is the best album it's versus official <laughs> yeah come on <laughs> memorabilia official <laughs> right okay let's 
crack on and go through the track by track. Opening track on the album then is Go. And what a banging start to a record this is. Kind of reminds me of, in more ways than one, Brian Storm from Favourite Work, Worst Nightmare by the Arctic Monkeys. Similar situation. Second album, opening track, first single release. It's kind of got a real drive to it. Talk about get you up for the album. Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, real good tempo to it. The genesis of the song was surprisingly drummer Abazizi, Abrazizi messing about with an acoustic guitar around a, a campfire. Apparently they were all out around a campfire during the recording uh, <clears throat> at the site. And Stone asked what I was playing and started playing it. And then Jeff started playing it and Eddie started singing with it and it just turned into a song. And I think that kind of encompasses a lot of how a lot of the songs kind of came together. That first record was more, they'd all kind of done bits and brought them into the studio. And with this one, I think they were kind of doing a lot of stuff on the fly. Um, in terms of the single charts, um, the other interesting thing about this record is the fact that they they didn't really release any of the, the songs as singles in America. They were that against the commercialization of, of their music and um, the fact that they didn't want to be sellouts. That they, they didn't release it as, as a single in America until like three or four years later, from what I can gather. Uh, its highest chart position worldwide was number two in New Zealand. Quite a lot of conjecture in terms of what the song's about. Some people think it's about drug over, overdose. This is probably due to the fact that um, after a live performance, not long after Kurt Cobain had kind of come out of uh, rehab, Eddie Vedder dedicated the song to him. Eddie Vedder himself said it's about his truck. <laughs> <laughs> and other people have said it, oh, it's about a relationship ending. And, and the lyrics kind of in there that could fit for all three, you know, the main lyric, please don't go on me. So, you know, is it him saying, don't don't die on me to a person, to his truck, or to the relationship, don't leave, you know? So it, it, I suppose it fits for all three. Uh, the other thing to mention at, at this conjuncture is that there was no videos done. After the, the success of, of 10, uh, the videos played a big part in that, the MTV culture that we've, we've talked about in past episodes. It was a great way of kind of getting your, your music out there. And again, they, they totally rebelled against this. Um, Jeff Ament said that the anti-video stance stemmed from a conversation from um, Mark Eitzel again. So he's uh, Mark Eitzel is the lead singer with the American Music Club. Uh, we covered one of their albums on episode 18 called San Francisco, which was released in 94, the year after this album. And he said to them that he'd love Jeremy, but the song's video ruined his vision of it. And 10 years on from now, I don't want people to remember our songs as videos. That's what Jeff Amen said. And, and I kind of, most of the rest of the band behind him, apart from what I can gather is Abrazizi wasn't <laughs> too impressed. He was out to kind of make as much money as he could and, and get out in as many many places as possible. But I quite like that. I quite admire the fact that they they were willing to kind of stick to their principles and go against the, the record company. And and I, I remember that story from Ten as well when Eddie Vedder they wanted to be black 
as a single after the first lot had done really well and he was like, no, it's not happening. So um, was it played on MTV at all? I don't, well, it wouldn't have been, would it? Because there was, there was no video to accompany it and it was all about music videos. So, I mean, it got played on, on airplay and radios, but I can't see how it would have been played on MTV at all, no. And, and, and another thing to kind of go alongside that, there's a, a song that's on the next album, Vitalogy, which is an absolute beautiful song. If you like, like the ballads on this, you'd love this song. It's called Better Man. And the producer, Brendan O'Brien, actually said <clears throat> he made the mistake when they were recording it because it was around this time that they'd, they'd kind of come up with a song that, you know, that's a surefire hit. <laughs> he said, he realised straight away that's the worst thing he could have said. So... They kind of rejected it out of hand. That's not going on the record then. So it wasn't until they kind of started work on Vitalogy that they, they re-recorded it and, and got a version they liked. And it is an absolutely brilliant song. Brilliant song. Second track on the album then. There's no, there's no let up from that. It's another absolute driving, monster, loud, heavy, heavy song. It was the third single um, that the, the record company released, again, in, in Europe and the rest of the world. Not really a favourite of mine, this one, but again, <laughs> dispute over what the song's about, Eddie's lyrics, musically, primarily from Stone Gossard. Is it against the media? Is it against the record company? Some people have said it's about gang rape. Some people have said it's about animal rights. Apparently, the, the, the record company executive said to said to the band he wanted Eddie Vedder's vocals high up in, in the, the mix, and then he he said to Eddie, you know, what's it actually about? And Eddie told him and he said, okay, maybe just kind of keep it down in the mix. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I don't know what the the, um, the song is actually relating to, but we'll let people have their own interpretation on that. Or if you do know for sure, write in and tell us. <laughs> write in. Write in. I mean, it's a different way. Clip clock up to leads. Let us know. That'd be quite exciting, wouldn't it? <laughs> Knock at the door. Some Canadian mountie sat there on his uh, horse. I've just come to tell you. <laughs> okay. Well, you don't think they come from Canada on a horse? I just, I'm not quite sure why your head went to a Canadian mountie, but whatever. Where would your head go to if you were thinking about people riding horses? Just random people walking up on a horse was weird enough. <laughs> you just took it one step further. <laughs> there we go. That's me all over, isn't it? Okay. Uh, third track then, very emotional track, Daughter. And I guess this is one of the first tracks that kind of really um, got me on this record. It's quite an, an immediate track. Tells the story of an, an abusive mother and father in terms of their, their daughter, uh, a girl with learning difficulties. It's a bit at odds with the instrument. This one's a bit a bit calmer in terms of the it's acoustic lead, uh, not quite as loud and raucous, but there's still that kind of anger and bitterness in, in Eddie's vocals. Great guitar solo in there. And um, this was the second single that they released. It, it actually... Got to number four in the Irish charts, number 11 in New Zealand, uh, number 18 in the UK. And Eddie's talking here about the fact that kids were misunderstood back then. I've heard him talk about it since, that learning difficulties were never kind of diagnosed at that time. A lot of people just kind of took it as uh, kids being lazy or 
misbehaving and, um, you know, just not giving a shit, really. And he, he kind of said about it, what hurts about shit like that is it ends up defining people's lives, you know, if they get abused for not being able to cope with whatever it is they're supposed to be doing. They have to live with that abuse for the rest of their lives. Good creative people are just fucking destroyed, he said. So, again, he's kind of looking out for the people that are marginalised by society and in bad situations and trying to put a positive spin on it and um, highlight that kind of stuff. So, again, great meaning behind the song, good emotion and um, a very good start to the album there. So, fourth track, Daughter, sorry. Is that one of the ones that you like? Yeah. Is it your favourite? or? Yeah. Oh, it is? Okay. Mm. Did you know what it was about? Could you? No. no. Figure it out from the list. Okay. Uh, fourth song, Glorified G. This is the first one on the album that wasn't released as a single. It's uh, an anti-gun song. It's an insight into the uh, differences between, I guess, uh, Vedder and Abrazizi. Um, someone told Eddie Vedder that Abrazizi had bought a gun. So <laughs> Eddie went up to him and went, are you kidding? You bought a gun? And Abrazizi is a bit cocky. He's like, yeah. And then he saw the look on Vedder's face apparently and said, well, I bought two actually, but they're just pistols I'm trying to downgrade it a little bit but uh, a glorified version of a pellet gun is part of the lyrics and so he, he made a song out of it a good very good song and uh, made it clear that he's very anti-gun another feather in his cap as far as i'm concerned good man eddie fifth track then dissident what a great opening brilliantly guitars and drums again i think this is probably the second most immediate and accessible songs um, it's got a brilliant chorus as well. A dissident is you. I think once you get that in your head, <laughs> it's there all day. I love it. Uh, this one's a story of uh, a woman who hides a political fugitive, but ultimately couldn't handle the, the responsibility of it and, and gives him up in the end. It's the fourth single, the release from the album. Uh, this was released in May 94. Very popular in Scandinavia. Uh, reached number two in Norway, number three in Denmark, 14 in the UK, number seven in Ireland. Like it? Hmm. Anything else to say? No. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> so the final track on side one, WMA. It's a CD. It doesn't have sides. It's a CD for us, but for other people it would have been our vinyl. Would it now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, WMA, which apparently stands for White male american so more of a low-key start to this song musically you get the tom tom drums um a prominent bass line distant vocals from eddie vedder which kind of drift in as the song goes on it's definitely a, a grower in more sense than one and the original title of the song was policeman which features heavily in the lyric and eddie tells a story um about the fact that when they were recording this this album on one of these kind of uh, escapes, he went, I think he was back in uh, where he was from. He was with a, a black friend of his. They'd been recording and he said he was in a bit of a state. He'd not showered for a couple of days. He just drove to to be with his friends and away from everything. It was late at night. He said he was looking pretty disgusting and grimy and his, his black friend at the side of him was looking 
far more respectful. And these police guys turned up and started hassling his mate. Didn't take any interest in him at all. And he obviously went mad and kind of challenged them and then came back into the studio and they'd uh, got a bit of a song together and he just started singing this and the song was born from his from his anger, I guess. So again, another good example of him kind of looking out for the, the marginalised in society and trying to make a, a stance and height and awareness of, of all this stuff. There's a... There's a a, an article in the CD, I guess on the LP as well. <laughs> in the in the album artwork, let's just say, um, there's a clipping from a, a newspaper article about a, another black guy that, that was kind of killed in when he was being hassled by by the police. And anyway, let's move on. Side two. If you've got the LP, the opening track on side two is Blood. And if Eddie Vedder was an angry man on WMA, he didn't half crack it, crank it up another notch or two on blood. Wow. I've got to be honest, I'm surprised he didn't <laughs> absolutely shred and obliterate his vocal cords. Um, this is his song about frustration at the music business. And he's referring to all the blood he's given up to Pearl Jam with his lyrics and performances and his things in there. Spin me around, roll me over, fucking circus. Um, but a bit more melodic than that. <laughs> Not a lot more, but but yeah, it's a a proper raucous start to the the second side of the, the record. Uh, eighth song is Rearview Mirror. Now this is a song that was used as a, the title of their greatest hits compilation, even though it wasn't released as a single. It's primarily Eddie Vedder's song. He plays guitar on it. I think it's one of the first songs he played on played guitar on on a Pearl Jam record as well. And he said about it, we start off with the music and it's kind of propels the lyrics. It made me feel like I was in a car, leaving something, a bad situation. There's an emotion there. I remembered all times, all the times I wanted to leave. So one of the lyrics that, that is included is, I saw things clearer once you're in my rearview mirror. Um, Dave Abrazizi was under a bit of pressure on this one. I'm not sure why, but apparently you can hear him at the end of the recording throwing his drumsticks against the wall and then apparently he punched his uh, his snare drum and threw it off the side of a cliff. <laughs> it seems a bit extreme to me. But yeah, Vedder finished the vocals for this one on the last day of recording um, and wasn't really sure about this song partly because he thought it was too catchy, but there's a brilliant song. Ninth track then, uh, Rats. A bit of a change of vibe on this one. There's definitely a lot funkier, this one. Um, I this is one of the ones that I appreciate more now. And in an interview with Melody Merkel, Eddie Vedder concluded, when referring to the song being about the human race and their comparison with rats, he said, rats are probably a hell of a lot more admirable. So there you go. But another another very, very good song. And you like that. Your face then, you love that. I did Why quite do like you that. Like that? Well, I don't know because I guess when you hear that sentiment, I well, I immediately thought about all the shits that you come across during life, and the fact that there's probably more bad people. It feels like a lot of the time there's a lot more bad people in this world than good. A lot more selfish people for sure. That's why I liked it. Okay. What about you? Any opinions? No. 
Oh, okay, I didn't think so. Let's move Not on. about rats in real life or the song. Okay. <laughs> so track 10, we are at the uh, stage where we've reached my favourite song on the record and I know many others. The song is Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town and the title, Eddie Vedder had finally got fed up of one-word titles. I know you commented on the on 10 that you like the fact that they were all one-word <laughs> titles and they pretty much are on this one as well, other than this one. So he, he used up all the uh, <laughs> the words that weren't oh, in the well. others on this one, yeah. So I, I just think this is an absolutely amazing song. Um, I mean, how do you come up with a song about how it feels to be old and kind of forgetting things and dealing with that kind of growing old in a, in a small town? And oh, I just think it's very impressive. Beautiful, in fact. Let's read some of the lyrics. One of my favourite lines of all time in any song. I change by not changing at all. Small town predicts my fate. Perhaps that's what no one wants to see. I just want to scream, hello. Oh, brilliant. And I like the fact that he doesn't scream the lyric. You kind of expect him to, I just want to scream. And he kind of just holds it there. A little bit above, but not. I just think that gives it more power. Apparently this one started off as an as a Vedder, an Eddie Vedder poem. Uh, it's about two people. One who moves on from the small town. The woman that gets left behind. It's really about aging and regret, and and Vedder talks about his fascination with small towns, and there's there's kind of three possibilities: you're always fighting to get out of there, or you decide to stay and be a big fish in this small town, or you kind of just get stuck there, and have to deal with that fight. And then the the closing lyrics of the song, hearts and thoughts, they fade away, which you can imagine live gets sung back at the band quite a lot, so. Yeah, I just think it's um, some great lyrics in there, great great song, and, and quite sad in a way. The fact that this woman kind of sees this ex-lover coming in, probably suffering from a bit of dementia or just old age and can't really picture who it is, and then there's, suddenly realises but he's a bit embarrassed to say who she is, thinking that he don't know who she is, and that's the bit where I just want to scream hello comes in, but... Yeah, I just love it. Great song. What about you? It didn't jump out at me. <laughs> Makes me considering our marriage at this point. <laughs> I never said that. Yeah, I hate your face. You just look crushed. You're just like, what am I doing in my life? <laughs> no, no. We'll rephrase that. What am I doing with my wife? <laughs> Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's swiftly move on to track 11. The penultimate song on the album is Leash. Uh, this is a, a really good song. Another one of the ones that I didn't really kind of pick up on the first time I had the record. And I think I've talked about this before. When I had CDs, quite often I would have listened to the first half of it and then moved on and then really? come back and listen to the first half of it. Why? Because I got interrupted or I only had 40 minutes and I, I would never kind of then pick up where I left off because you just put it back on and, and go again. So I'd always listen to side one or the first five, six, seven songs of a CD rather than the later songs. So I think that's why this one is kind of only just kind of started to connect with me. Um, 
I mean, I like them now. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I, I love the bit in the song that kind of soars and drops around the lyric. Uh, I'm, I'm fuel, you are friends, we got the means to make amends. Uh, and Vedder's fight to come to terms with his standing as the voice of a generation uh, is this song, really, uh, as anointed in the media, not by himself. He, uh, he sings, I'm no guide, but I'm by your side. Rubbish in the mantle, thrown on him, but standing shoulder with the fans. Um, and I think there's some clear indication that the pressure was getting to him in the lyrics as well. You know, just the fact that he sings, drop the leash, get out of my fucking face. Um, but I think the other thing about this this song is I think it's in the wrong place on the record. I think it suffers a bit from being after elderly woman in a uh, behind a counter in a small town because that that kind of song is so if you listen to it and kind of get into it as I did not you did you're kind of really emotional and then it, it, this other harder hitting song you just yeah what you know I think if they did done the other way around it would have been better but it's the first rule of a good mixtape you've got to like challenge people and like up and down with their emotions yeah that's clearly why they did it I mean you've got like this this kind of downer song and then an upper song and then the closing songs uh easily the most languid and mellow track on the on the whole album so they probably didn't want them two kind of slower songs at the end but i think it worked better like that i think indifference is the the, the final track track 12 um and it is a what a, almost a perfect album closer aren't it? that's my second favorite yeah brilliant song brilliant song the genesis of this one was that uh, Jeff Ament was messing about on, on with, he said, with a, a load of acoustic instruments. He's a bass player, so I'm guessing he had an acoustic bass. They weren't in the recording studio anywhere. Uh, he was with Eddie Vedder, and Eddie just commented, oh, I could sing over that shit all, kind of, all day kind of thing. So Jeff Ament kind of kept it in his head. So he did. <laughs> well, they kept it in his head because they weren't like somewhere where they could record. Got home, recorded it when he got home to remember it. And then the next day they went into the studio and he, he kind of played it. Um, Stone Gossard came up with a, the beautiful guitar melody that you hear on there. And then he said that Eddie Vedder immediately started singing over it. And he said it all came together very, very quickly. Lyrics, uh, the protagonist is clearly struggling with life. And I think the song highlights poverty, inequality, injustice, all the themes that run throughout the album. And the message there is to keep fighting, to stand up against the, the apathy and indifference. And there's some great lines in here. Um, I'll swallow poison until I grow immune. I will scream my lungs out till it fills this room, which I think is just like a powerful message of resilience and determination, really, even though, you know, there's a, there's a lyric in there that says, what difference does it make? Top finish to the album. Soul Kate. We've come to the time. Do you want me to tell you what you scored? Ten. You're on the... You scored it seven out of ten. Okay. So you, you didn't score it low at all. Um, I've got my rating locked in and ready. <laughs> what are you giving it? Are you on halves? Uh, no, mm. not on this one. Mm. And I scored uh, the album ten. I scored it nine and a half. I think I'll probably go for seven again, to be honest. I did like it better, but not enough to take it to an eight. I'm sorry. So then that you have to give it a, a seven and a half then if you like it better than ten. No, I don't. <laughs> How can you give it the same rating? Oh. <laughs> I 
Can't we just re-record this bit, please? Why? And then give it a seven and a half. Why? <laughs> what have you given it, dear? <laughs> I've given it a nine. Um, if it, I gave it a seven and a half yeah. and you gave it a nine, then it would score the same overall. <laughs> Which I think is fair. I think it's fair. I don't think there's much between the album. I mean, I, I voted on that little poll for ten, but I don't think there's much between them. And I, I, I only voted for ten because that was the one that I kind of played more when I got the record. And it uh, triggers more kind of memories of what I was doing around the time of that release. I didn't have either. Yeah. Uh, I lived next door in bed six. The person next door, I'm pretty sure, owned both. Um, and we listened to them a lot when we were, like, hanging out in her room. Um, I just prefer this one on revisiting it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair that you give it a seven and a half, seeing as you prefer this one. Did not give it a seven and a half. Okay, so versus... Scores still an impressive 16 out of 20, which I'm not sure whether that sneaks into the top 10 or not of our 30 odd albums we've covered. I don't know, you're the stato of the family, yeah, which I feel is a bit harsh because it, it definitely be in my top 10 of the ones that we've covered. But, um, yeah, great album. I really enjoyed kind of finding out more about how it all came together and the meaning behind the songs. and Congratulations to Pearl Jam, 30 years on. <laughs> uh, yes, a, a very, very good record. We just took a little break there after recording about the album tracks. It is Saturday night for us, just after 9 o'clock, 21st of October 1993. We've, we've, we're in a time machine. <laughs> I'm just like, is it what? Huh? 2023, <laughs> I've got 1993 on the brain. And so far today has been a sporting disaster for me. Uh, England got absolutely duffed in the World Cup cricket earlier today. A record defeat by South Africa. Sheffield Wednesday, my football team, went down to uh, a very average Watford side. 1-0, and we still sit bottom of the championship. But... Could it be good news on the horizon? England against South Africa in the semi-final of the World Rugby Cup or even the Rugby World Cup. That's how much I am into rugby. We are winning. We are 12-6 up, so let's hope we're still winning after this is finished recording. I love that you're only into rugby when they're winning. <laughs> Grasping at straws. <laughs> no, I do like the internationals, um, but I just never get time to watch them. Right, anyway, let us look... Cast I mean, our minds back I'd 30 feel years. I sorry for you, but it's because you watch too much of the sport. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm first not, world problems. I'm not disputing that. I'm not disputing that one bit. Right, let's start with the singles. Um, and we are starting just outside the top 10. The UK charts, UK single charts, uh, the week of release of Versus. And New In at 12 is one of the best songs of the 90s by an absolute mile. And one of the few singles that we both bought before we knew each other. This 12 was inch, I have the 12 inch. This was uh six five, six years before we met, and it is Play Dead by Bjork or Bjork, I think you pronounce it, mm. with David Arnold. And who, I really pissed everyone off by playing it over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. 
Well, if you're going to play one song over and over again, that's a good one to play. She has got an amazing voice, and um, he, David Arnold's music, the score, it's from a film. Uh, and I put the video on last night, and I was like, is this from a film? What film is this from? And at the same time, both they went... They jinxed each other by going, Young, Young Americans. <laughs> and it was, it was. Um, I had a quick look at what the premise of the film was about. It was starred Harvey Keitel and Lily Allen's dad, Keith Allen. But it didn't get a very good ratings about some American detective that came over to help with the case in the UK. Anyway, doesn't sound like it's one worth looking up. Um, but yeah, so there was some good other good music around at this time. At number 11, just one place ahead, was The Gift by NXS. I quite liked NXS. Uh, my brother had Kick on vinyl. He used to listen to that more than he did. Um, my mate Ringo was big into NXS as well. He had quite a few of their albums. Uh, but I don't, I don't remember this song. This was a bit after, I think, Kick was released a bit earlier than than The Gift. I can't remember exactly. I think it was the end of the 80s, maybe. I don't remember this at all. Yeah. Quite an interesting video. Uh, they obviously spent quite a bit of money on it. I mean, the effects aren't the best. A lot of explosions in it and the band coming out of explosions. But um, For the time. For the time, yeah. Um, so that was that one. And then the rest of it, oh... It's a lot of dross, basically. I don't even want to go into it. The only, the only one worth mentioning was there was uh, a song by Dina Carroll. We watched the video to that, or I watched the video to that. Don't Be a Stranger. Again, don't remember the song at all, but quite a nice ballad, I guess, if you're into that kind of thing. Very Whitney Houston-like. She's a very fine vocalist. Um, and we're trying to figure out where the, the video was shot. It turns out it was in Prague. So quite an, an atmospheric shot in black and white. Otherwise, I'd been able to figure it out, clearly. Um, <laughs> yes. Clearly. So that was that, and then the the, the rest of the top ten. Uh, you've got Hadaway's "Life at Nine, which just sounded like his other song, "Baby, Don't Hurt Me, Don't Hurt Me." No. Yeah, it did. Um, "One Love" by the Prodigy, which hasn't even got any singing in it. It's just a load of <laughs> rave rubbish. You got to let the music by Capella. <laughs> got to let the music what? She don't let nobody. By Chakademus and Pliers. God, honestly. Moving on up by M Peoples at five. Okay, that's not a bad song. Stay by Eternal. Well, at least I remember what it sounds like, even though it's not my thing. Boom Shake the Room by DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Pinch. Prince? Pinch. Prince. It should have been a pinch. And number three, Fresh Prince. That's thingy, isn't it? William. Will, not William. <laughs> Will Smith, that's him. <laughs> boom, boom, shake the room. Yeah, I don't mind that, actually. Uh, Relight My Fire, take that feature in Lulu at two. Yeah, whatever. And uh, number one was the old meatloaf. It was the best thing he ever did was driving the coach for the Spice Girls in Spice Girl the movie. I'd do anything for that. Oh. I'm so pleased that you decided today was the day to record this on the day that you're incapable of stringing words into a sentence. Okay, tell us what it's called, please. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Give us an example. <laughs> <laughs> you do I anything was working for love. in uh, an Indian restaurant in Bradford when, and we had a jukebox downstairs and this was the default song. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> on the jukebox. And because the, it was like a new bar and it was really weird to have a bar underneath an Indian restaurant, it didn't really take off. 
and the jukebox was not used very much. <laughs> I heard that song a lot. <laughs> and are you a fan? Not really. <laughs> I mean, it's meatloaf, isn't it? Like, you get drunk, end of the night, everybody puts their arms around each other and screams a bit of meatloaf. It's fine. It's just not really my bag the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, good description. I think this was off... Um... Well, it might even be in the... I haven't even had a look at these top ten. Is it in the top ten? Oh, it's number one. So, yeah, we will come to that. We'll come back to Meatloaf because he's number one in the album charts as well as the single charts. Obviously, a very successful time for the old boy. Uh, just outside the top ten in the UK album charts was Nirvana's In Utero, which had been released four or five weeks ahead of uh, Versus by Pearl Jam. So it was either way around to uh, Nevada, uh, Nevermind and 10, where 10 was released about four or five weeks ahead of Nevermind this time. It was the other way around. Commercially, uh, Versus did better than In Utero. Critically, both albums um, very much praised and still to this day um, highly, highly thought of, I guess is the right way. I didn't actually have that. I think Ringo had it. I taped it off him and I wasn't as keen. But I need to go back and probably listen to that. I did, they did it on purpose, didn't they? They didn't, they didn't want to sound as... they hit, A bit like Pearl Jam, they heard the fact that the, the, the record was that commercially successful and accessible. So I can understand why they did it, really. Um, number 10 was Pocket Full of Kryptonite by The Spin Doctors. Two Princes was the lead single off that. Again, this was an album my brother had. My brother... He didn't buy many records. He must have just gone, gone out for a week and just bought <laughs> his, his life's records. worth of records. Yeah. Um, Beverly Craven was at nine with Love Scenes. I have that. <laughs> yeah, I think we talked about this in the last one, so it must have hung around for a while. Mm. I mean, it's not awful. It's just very oh. produced and ballady. She's got some great songs and uh, she's got a great voice. Mm. I'd happily listen to that. Like, have you? I have, that, I have you, listened to it. Is that no. what you do in your study when you're supposed oh. to be working? You listen to my random. What do you mean when I'm supposed to be working? <laughs> what are you trying to say? People from work might be listening to this. I work very hard, thank you very much. God, okay, when you're working really hard, thank do you. you simultaneously listen to random the dregs of my CD collection? I ain't got time because I'm not busy listening to <laughs> records for this. This podcast. My commitment holds no bounds, darling. Uh, right, eight, Prince, the hits one. Seven, Prince, the hits two. Clearly his second lot of hits were slightly better than his first. New in at six was Sheffield's Def Leppard with Retroactive. Don't even remember that one. But I wasn't a huge Def Leppard, fans, Def Leppard fan, so that's hardly surprising. At five, another new entry, Aces and Kings, another best of this time, it's Go West. What's your favourite Go West song? We close I, our eyes. We never could I couldn't name a Go West song. What? King of wishful thinking. Okay, well, I know them when you okay. say them, but I couldn't name one. Another new entry at number four, The Wonderful, The Wonder Stuff with Construction for the Modern Idiot, an album I haven't heard, actually. I've heard a few of the Wonder Stuff albums. That isn't one of them. Have you heard it? I will have done, but... I don't remember why it's not. I didn't own it, so. Yeah. Uh, I have seen them live a few times. They've um, been 
um, sharing a bill with our good friend Ian Prowse. So I've been to a couple of dual gigs. I think they might be playing the other side of Leeds coming up, actually. I think he's supporting them again. But it's, it's like a midweek night, and it's like right on the other side of the city. So not sure I'll make that one, but you never know. Uh, number three was the Pet Shop Boys with Very. Number two, M People, new in with Elegant Slumming. Obviously off the back of their uh, phenomenally successful single, Moving On Up. And as we already mentioned, number one was Bat Out of Hell 2, Back Into Hell by Meat Love. Didn't have the first one. My cousin had it. Julie had it. Played it a lot. Sang it a lot. Kind of put me off a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like you said, I think that was a good description. It's end of the night fodder. Nothing you're going to hate, but nothing to get overly excited about other than the millions that do. Uh, right, movies. Let's move on to the movies. I'm not going to go through every one of these. Let's just pick out the ones that we know. Um... So the first one I know in the top ten. I've actually seen some of these. What? I've seen like Water for Chocolate. I've never even heard of that. I was going to move straight on for that. <laughs> like Water for Chocolate, directed by Alfonso Arau, starring a lot of other foreign names. It must be I can't a... decide if I've seen The Wedding Banquet or not. Might maybe. I'll obviously have a foreign film moment. What's going on? Right, look them up while I go through the rest of the ones that you want to see, the American commercialised <laughs> yeah. ones. Because uh, the first one I was going to come to on the list is uh, The Firm, starring Surprise. Tom Cruise, who I'm sure we've mentioned before, Kate is not the biggest fan of, but I really like. Uh, Gene Hackman's on the, the bill there as well. I've read the book as well. It's a John Grisham book, an absolutely brilliant book if you like that kind of thing. And the film was pretty good as well. An 18, I'm surprised it's an 18. Um, how are you getting on? Do you want to back up? The wedding back, it, it's angry. Yeah. The, I, I don't know. I feel like m- maybe I saw it, but I'm not sure. Okay. So. Was it his kind of breakthrough film? Uh, yes. Yeah. One of them. Right, okay. Eat, drink, man, woman and pushing hands. I haven't heard of pushing hands, but I've heard of eat, drink, man, woman. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've seen Three Colours Blue. I was definitely having a foreign, going a foreign film moment. Wow. <laughs> so there's three of these films, if I remember right. Yeah. Right? There's Three Colours Red, Three Colours White. I think one? it's Red, White, Blue. Yeah. French or? Yeah. Okay. Any good? Yeah. Okay. Um, What's Love Got to Do With It? Six, don't know that one. Sleepless in Seattle, number five. This... I think I saw it on the telly later. The others yeah. I saw at the cinema were around the time. So this was the original one uh, with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, and they went on to do another kind of rom-com with um, You've Got Mail, which I think was a few years later. Very good film, this one. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Good soundtrack as well. It's got Harry Connick Jr. on there and one or two other really good songs. Um... Jurassic Park was at four. So this was the original Jurassic Park film released clearly in 1993. I've not seen that. Directed by Steven Spielberg, starring okay. Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum. I took our daughter to see the latest one, um, probably about six months ago now, which was pretty good. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. It did make you jump. The effects were very, very good. 
start of an era of... Was it not a kid's film, though? I didn't see it. because It was a I, PG. I saw it like as a kid's film. No, not really. <laughs> I was like, why would I want to go and see a kid's film? No. No, it's, it's kind of an adventure film. I mean, kids could watch it, but they'd be kind of, their head would be buried in your chest at certain point, like Doctor Who style, hiding behind the sofa and all that. Um, number three was Rising Sun, starring Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes, Harvey Keitel again. Don't know anything about that, never seen it. True Romance, the Tony Scott film, uh, number two, which was quite controversial at the time. I think it was quite a violent film. Never seen it. Real life Patricia Arquette, who stars in there with Christian Twice. Slater. Val Kilmer, didn't realise he was in it. Gary Oldman, Dennis Hopper, great cast. It's a good film. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was new in. Straight in with 1.2 million at the box office, pretty good. Uh, number one film was uh, Harrison Ford in The Fugitive, which I did see also starring Tommy Lee Jones as the guy that's chasing chasing him. Pretty good for his time. Don't know whether it'd hold up now, but I did not watch that. Yeah, it was decent, decent film, decent thriller. Quite liked it. So yeah, not wow, some films Kate seen. That was a good uh, top ten. It was. <laughs> Uh, right, we'll just finish off briefly for 1993 with television. There wasn't much happening in terms of news. Uh, the news thing was essentially John Major launched his Back to Basics campaign, which I can't remember, but he was the Prime Minister. And there was a demonstration against the British National Party in Welling, where it's at its headquarters. I mean, come on, QVC launches the first shopping channel. Yeah, that's like was going to be my headline on the TV news. Thanks for stealing that. <laughs> But yes, Sorry. yes. No, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, uh, so we were a bit behind the curve here because it had been in America since 1986. So we were kind of seven years behind. But I can remember watching it thinking, I probably didn't watch it straight away because I probably didn't have the capability on the telly because I don't, I didn't get like other channels for quite a long time. But I remember coming home drunk one night watching some woman kind of trying to sell necklaces and then all these phone calls supposedly coming in and the price going up and all. I was like, what is going on here? What's a necklace? Thing around you where you know, you've got one on. Necklace. Oh, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Uh, what else? The Saturday morning children's series Live and Kicking makes its debut on BBC One, presented by Andy Peters, Emma Forbes and John Barrowman. I can't remember John Barrowman ever being on there. So this was kind of the... Um, the new swap shop. It was swap shop in our day. But live and kicking it was. Did watch it. I don't know what I was still doing watching kids Saturday morning TV when say, I was 21 years like, old. But maybe I was just... I didn't have a telly. So uh, I couldn't watch it. Okay. Uh, the Independent Television Commission issues Channel 4 with a formal warning for an episode of The Soap Brookside, which I did watch which aired on the 7th and 8th of May that depicted a wife stabbing her abusive husband to death. Never want to shy away from a bit of controversy. Brookside, which is one of the reasons why I liked it. And then in other soap news, it was the last on-screen appearance of Rowley, the EastEnders dog and Queen Vic resident who spent part of the soap, or had been part of the soap since the first episode, and this episode featured his demise. His demise is... Oh, God. <laughs> What is it? A demise, not a dismise. A demise, and it attracted an audience of 14.8 million viewers to watch a dog die. Uh, the dog was played, who played Rolly, dies during a heat wave on 2nd of August 1995. Oh, thanks for that. 
So there you are. What, a... was going, what was the Stanley Kubrick thing? Oh, it was about the clockwork orange one. You can read that one if you're interested in that. Channel 4 is granted permission by the High Court to show excerpts from Stanley Kubrick's controversial 1971 film A Clockwork Orange as part of its Without Walls series. There you go. Have you seen that film? A Clockwork yeah. Orange? Okay. So what, what was the controversy? Violence? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the ban was lifted in 2000, a year after Kubrick's death, so it obviously lasted quite a long time. And the depiction of violence in it as well. Right. Have you read the book? Yeah, I read the book before I saw yeah. the film. Do you like it? Or? Well, it's it's an interesting. Yeah. Like the premise of it, it's like sort of dystopian future kind of. I read a lot of those books because yeah. obviously, when you study Russian and German, <laughs> a lot of those books originated in Russia and Germany. So I read a lot of that kind of literature. Right. Fair enough. Okay, let's move on to our final segment, which is our top threes. Right, top threes this week. We decided to dedicate our top three to animals featured on album artwork. Good one. And I managed to find or think of three albums that I've actually got. So I was happy with that. Um... I'm going to go first with my number three. Third choice was Casual Sex in the Cineplex, an album released by the brilliant Sultans of Ping FC. Uh, this was back in February 1993, so same year. If you don't know the uh, Sultans of Ping FC, most famous for their wonderful anthem, indie anthem, Where's Me Jumper. Many a... Many a uh, Mosh has happened to that song. Many a disco, indie disco, dancing. But it is a very, very good album as well. Uh, a lot of the songs are uh, tongue-in-cheek. Some great lyrics in there, some good catchy tunes. It's a great album. Love it. Uh, and uh, the album, sort of the animal that features on the album, on the back cover, there's a, I think it's a pit bull. There's some dog. I think it's a pit bull playing football. Quite like that. Kate, what have you got as your third choice? Um, I have got House der Luger by Einstein to annoy about. Go on then. Is, are these the ones that are... No, this is a different one. Who's that other one? There's one that's like a right industrial sound in German yeah. band. Is that there? Yeah. Oh, right, okay. I thought they were called something else. That's the album cover. Oh, so it's a black cover with a red drawn horse on it. Okay. Pissing horse. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. I thought it was on. I thought, I thought it was on a stand. I thought that was a stick holding it up. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Have you got the album? No. Have you heard the album? Oh yeah. I kind of wish I owned the album, but then I don't know if I'd listen to it now. Maybe I might listen to it on Spotify and decide whether I want to buy it. Let me know. It could be a Christmas present if you want it. Okay, uh, my second choice is the absolutely stupendous Expecting to Fly by the Blue Tones, released another February release, this time in 1996. I absolutely love this album. Talks to me a lot. Um, it's got a song in it called Talking to Clary. Lead single was Slight Return, but there's a, a host of other kind of 
indie songs that made the uh, UK top 20. And um, it just hangs together brilliantly as an album. Love it. We will cover it at some point. And um, the, the album cover is essentially a peacock with its feathers out. That is the album cover. Um, so that is my second choice. Kate, what have you gone for? Uh, Stories of Johnny by Mark Almond, which has like a, some kind of, it might be a minor bird or something like that on a ah, branch. Ah, okay. Yeah. So have you got this album? Yes. Vinyl? Yes. Okay. I was going to say, I hadn't seen it in your CD collection. So was this, where does this come in oh, his God, really? pantheon well, of how albums? How do I know? <laughs> All right. In your head, was it like an early one, a middle <laughs> one, a late one? Um, if it's on vinyl, it must have been a fairly early one. It's style. Yeah. But like early right. one. Yeah. Any any notable songs on it? Stories of Johnny. <laughs> How does that one go? <laughs> Has those words in it quite a few times. <laughs> I will get her to sing one day on this podcast, <laughs> listeners. Anybody thinks she's got a horrible voice, but she's got a great voice. All right, so that's your number two. Um, wow, Mark Harmon's only number two. Amazing. Because I picked the last one specifically to irritate you. Oh. <laughs> so I just I had to save it. I would do anything <laughs> for love, especially that. <laughs> All right. Uh, my number one um, is another album from the 90s, this time April 1994. One of my favourite albums of all time. Top three, possibly. It is the absolutely incomparable Park Life Bible. And on the uh, the album cover, there's basically two greyhounds mid-race, um, front-facing the camera, really going for it. So, uh, some absolutely amazing songs on that on that record, and I, th- I think it kind of helped that I went to see them live. Uh, I went to see them perform it live. I was actually on the guest list for that gig, and I hadn't heard any of the the, um, the songs off the album. It was right at the point of release, and yeah, brilliant, absolutely brilliant album. Go on then. What are you going to annoy me with, Kate? What's your number one? Pinky and Perky's Hit Parade. <laughs> You've got two pigs on the front. See who they are, Pinky and Perky, and you'll love this because it's got Pinky and Ver- Pinky and Perky's versions of such hits as "Yellow Submarine" <laughs> and "When I'm 64" on it. So finally, you like some Beatles songs? <laughs> do you own this record? Yeah, I do. <laughs> you bought it last week in a charity shop. Yeah. <laughs> No, my my grandma had it, uh, and she must have given it to us at some point because we didn't. I think we do. I think actually, I do have most of the the records that she had, so she must have given us her records at some point. Um, and this was one of them. So right. it wasn't originally bought for me; it was bought for my cousin, who is maybe ten years older than me. Maybe not that much. No second cousin my dad's cousin okay i've lost interest about five minutes ago when you when you said pinky and perky (laughs) my god i mean if you've never listened to pinky and perky highly recommend (laughs) yeah if you're like going insane and just want to top yourself 
that would just about finish you off. Is it kind of? Can I just check in your record collection? Is it sat, sat right next to right said Fred by any chance? Why would it be sat next? Because that's right an equally Fred? rubbish album, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. That's good choices. Um, said through gritted teeth. At this stage, what I'm going to mention <laughs> is that our socials, social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter. Reddit, does Reddit count on social media? Yeah, I think so. If you want to let us know what your choices would be for uh, album artwork with animals on it. Eon Threads, yeah. We'd be delighted to hear from you. No, I'm not on anything other than, I can't cope with anything more You have to say X, formerly known as Twitter as well. Don't have to. (laughs) But everywhere, like you change the name to X. Obviously, no one knows what X is, so everywhere that people are talking about it, it's X, formerly known as Twitter. Well, he's a bit of a Twitter himself, <laughs> isn't it? To be fair, so that went well. Just our songs of the week to finish. Then um, I have gone for "Little by Little" by the Wanna Dies. This was released as a single in. 2003 um, from their album Before and After from the, the previous year I saw um, an interview, a recent interview with Paul Wixton, the um, lead singer of the Wanna Dies this week which he did with I think it might have been the NME uh, very insightful, very funny I love the Wanna Dies, I've probably mentioned it before, if you can't remember who the Wanna Dies are another great 90s band from Sweden the most uh, famous song was a You and Me song, which featured in the Romeo and Juliet film by Baz Luhrmann. No, Coronation Street. Oh, yeah. I knew yeah. it was one of them yeah. that we haven't seen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but this particular song, Little by Little, uh, they mentioned the, the video for the song in, in this interview. And I watched it, I'd never seen it before. I haven't laughed so much in ages. It's an absolutely hilarious video. So have a watch of that. It's very funny. Uh, Kate, what have you gone for? I've gone for Actual Age by the Lilacs. Okay, do you know what year that's from? Is it a recent it's one? From, I think it's from this year. Okay. Uh, it's from like this month. Right. Wow, that is recent. So is this one of your Spotify pickups? Yes. Okay. Um, we'll put the link for that in as well. Um, look forward to having a, a listen to that. Uh, just one final request we if you've made it this far we're hoping you like what we're doing um, please if you listen especially if you listen on Spotify just go on to that platform you don't have to leave any um, feedback just give us a star rating um, unless it's one and then don't bother because we've already got a couple of them <laughs> I need it to go up <laughs> who's given us a one star rating I don't know don't tell you who's left the, the, the ratings does it it's probably Dave so we've we've got we've got two one star ratings and two five star ratings. So yeah, I'm saying Davey cousin and Davey best mate. <laughs> yeah, so we've obviously upset someone with some what we've said, but anyway, that's not a bad thing. Right, so we're going to be back in three weeks' time. Um, all the links for our uh, social media and email and all the rest of it will be in the episode notes. We, as ever, really do appreciate you listening. Uh, it means a lot to us. We do put a lot of effort into this, uh, putting well, it together. So, uh, 
so yeah thank you for sticking with us and we'll see you in two or three weeks time uh, depending on our busy life schedules for mark armand's heart on snow so until then thank you very much and goodbye <laughs>